Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name's Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week's episode features a conversation with Christoph Armand, the editor-in-chief of Germany's Zeit Magazine. Of course, we normally speak to independent magazine makers in this podcast, but it was fascinating to hear from somebody who's operating at the other end of the scale with a really large mainstream audience. As you'll hear, he's controlled stretches across a whole series of magazine titles, but I was surprised by how much crossover there seems to be between what Christoph is doing and the independent publishers we normally speak with. One very obvious difference between these worlds is money, as in independent magazines generally don't have any. And I thought it was really refreshing to hear Christoph talking about the importance of actually making money from publishing magazines. There's often an assumption that profit is somehow the enemy of creativity. But he says his early experiences in publishing convinced him that's not the case. And today he's determined that he should be able to tell the sort of stories he wants while also producing a profitable magazine. I met Christoph while he was here in London last week and he really went out of his way to make sure we had the time to sit down and speak together. So I'm very grateful to him for that and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christoph from Zeit Magazine. So I am here with uh, Christoph Armand. Christoph, thank you very much for making time for me in your busy schedule. Oh, thank you for having me, Steve. I, I say busy because you are, I mean, I don't really understand how you do all these things. So the, so you're editor-in-chief of Zach Magazine. Yes. Okay, so that's, that's a busy job, right? It is. It's a weekly. It's a lot of things. So weekly do. magazine, you're thinking that that's pretty busy. But then you're also the publisher of the Weltkunst art magazine. Yes, it's a monthly art magazine, also owned by Die Zeit. Um, and then you launched Zach Magazine Man last uh, year. Which is true, yeah, true. It's a biannual uh, standalone magazine for men in the German market. So maybe you're thinking like, well, you know, biannual, that's easy. Two a year? Two, Two a year. year, I can do that. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> tell you, it's a lot of work and a lot of pressure because with the standalone, you, you really need to work on the cover story to, you know, find the right man, you know, do the shooting, do the in-depth interview, and uh, it's it's a lot of work. But all, we also hired Sasha Heimowitz, um, who's a great editor. He used to be the deputy editor of Neon magazine in Germany, to be the executive editor of of Zeit Magazine Mann. So that sort of takes away some pressure from that my shoulders. That takes some of the the load from you. But then you also have your city editions. That's right. Yeah, we. Um, more or less by accident, actually, we we started launching city editions. Uh, a colleague of mine from the publishing house at Zeit in Hamburg asked me uh, one and a half to two years ago, well, they were thinking about a collaboration with a local newspaper in Hamburg to launch a local magazine. And uh, we had a chat. And then at the end of the chat, we kind of came up with the idea, well, well, why don't we do it ourselves? Why don't we sort of... Uh, develop a city version of the weekly Zeit magazine uh, focused on Hamburg with the same type of formats and columns and the same type of photography and storytelling uh, and we launched it as an experiment and it really worked well uh, it's also a biennial so it comes out twice a year so it's not uh, weekly um, and then of course because it worked so well we thought well where else can we go so this year we went to Munich um, and it really worked out as well and so next year we're thinking about going uh, to a third city. 
All right. So the, I mean, this sounds very familiar because the it's so typical that when someone is starting an independent magazine, it begins with a conversation with two people, how many people mm. saying, hey, this thing doesn't exist. Why don't we just do it ourselves? But the difference for you is that there's this whole machinery behind you. I mean, we know when you say I want to do this, there's a bunch of people you can call upon and say, right, let's, let's plow ahead. Well, as you know, there's a lot of internal discussions. <laughs> that sounds very easy. <laughs> it sounds very easy. But of course, you know, we're working on concepts. We're pitching concepts, you know, to our CEO. And so there's a lot of debates and discussions going on behind the scenes. Um, but yes, I mean, sort of the idea of launching new ideas and, and sort of magazines and concepts, or whether they're digital or print, um, is very much part of the sort of the culture of Zeit. Um, and Rainer Esser, the CEO, permanently asks me and other editors uh, uh, in the publishing house, you know, what are we going to do next? Um, which is great, because it doesn't mean that you get every project greenlighted uh, immediately. Uh, for example, for Zeit Magazine Mann, we worked on it for one and a half years before we actually launched it. Um, we did a supplement uh, as sort of an experiment that we put in the Zeit uh, just to test out how our readers would react to the idea of a men's magazine. And uh, we got some feedback from that supplement, and so we then developed it into a standalone magazine. Well, it was interesting to see because the, the supplement, for example, was called Zeitmann, uh, because we thought, well, you know, if we do a men's magazine from the Zeit, we will call it Zeitmann. Um, but then we found out that readers, because of the title, expected something differently. Because, of course, the Zeit is a weekly, you know, big weekly political uh, paper. So they expected more sort of political analysis and more sort of debates um, in the magazine. So then we changed the title to Zeit Magazin Mann, uh, which then made it easier to actually, you know, do what we do. It's like more personal, more subjective type of journalism. Because I guess that along with all of this, so that, you know, I say with the independent side, the freedom is that you can just make something. But then famously, independents struggle to make money. Mm -hmm. and, the, and a lot of independent magazines just kind of keep on going anyway because there's the passion there and someone right. just wants to do it. But, I mean, you know, your CEO, CEO as much road as he gives you, I'm sure he's not just going to forever keep on saying like, yeah, fine, make I know. this. I mean, every project that we do is profitable. Um, so, you know, I, I started off, my very first job was, uh, I worked as an editor at Jetzt magazine at Süddeutsche Zeitung in the 90s. And it was a sort of a young weekly magazine. Um, and for as long as I was there, at least, uh, it didn't make money. So it was, you know, it was praised to be very in innovative and it reached out to a younger readership. So there was a, a lot of, you know, think positive things, um, but it didn't make money. And there was a, a permanent pressure Every year, I remember, like, it was probably September. Every September, we had to go to the, the top manager's offices and then, you know, waiting for the yes or no for next year. And so I was very young at the time. I was in my early 20s. But I, so, you know, that didn't matter that much to me at the time. But still, I thought, you know, whenever I'm going to be in charge of a magazine, I'll make sure that this situation will not appear. And so it's very, very important for us to make money, yeah. Because that's real freedom. Because if you're making money, then you, 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 you have that agency to go ahead and do stuff. Well, that's, the, the, you know, the, the, 
that that's very true and it it also makes makes my job easier to be more creative because as long as the magazine is profitable and it's making money and it's also popular with the readers and our numbers with the readers are, are, are good um, you know of course you, you have a lot more freedom to experiment and try out new things mm. and so there's also trust from the publishing house um, that we you know we, we're you know really take our responsibilities um, to always come up with new ideas um, and it's also interesting because you know you've mentioned the, the indie magazine scene um, and I really have to admit that this kind of sort of startup spirit uh, in the independent world, magazine world in the last years really inspired me to do what we do at Sight. Uh, you know, that kind of spirit of, you know, as you said, like having a conversation, talking about a, a void or, you know, a gap somewhere and you're thinking like, oh, would be great to have a magazine like this. Why doesn't it exist? Oh, why don't we do it? Why don't we try? Um, I think that's, that's the way, you know, you should do magazines. Um, and you know, I just last night here in, in London, I bought this um, this book about the story of the face. I was just reading it this morning, uh, and I, I thought, you know, this is so great. When I was a teenager, fourteen, fifteen years old, uh, living uh, in a small village near Frankfurt, I, I was always travel to the, the main station and try to get a copy of the face or ID, and uh, you know. Be, being here in London today talking about magazine journalism and the, sort of the spirit of launching your own magazine uh, is, uh, it's a really great feeling. Well, and, and I think the, the exciting thing for me is so, you know, we're seeing this boom in independent magazines. And I think that it, it's really notable looking back to, say, The Face or ID. These were people who were doing something really quite extraordinary. They, you know, there, there weren't many magazines like that around, whereas now... I think because the technology has evolved and it's, it's so much easier to make a print magazine. It's still very difficult, but it's mm-hmm. much easier. Things like Kickstarter mean that it's so much easier to get a bit of money together at the beginning for something like that. We're seeing so many more of these magazines. And, and that's something that I've seen you talking about before in terms of you know, reaching out across kind of Europe and the world and seeing all of these weird <laughs> inspiring little magazines yeah. popping out apparently out of nowhere well that's for example how we how we came up with the crazy idea of uh, you know launching our international issue um, it was exactly a conversation like we're having today with Brigitte Lacombe the French photographer who's based in New York and it was actually five years ago now and we had uh, lunch during the Berlin Film Festival uh, and she Brigitte had come to Berlin because she was there with Scorsese, because she, you know she's photographing all his, um, so doing the photography thing for all his movies, and so we had lunch, and she said to me, "Well, I, I really like the way you present your stories, that you know how you design your magazine, you present photography and illustrations. I wish I could read it." So, um, I went back to the offices uh, just straight after lunch, and I, I called in. A few editors for a spontaneous meeting, and I, I told them, you know, what just happened, and I, and I said, well, why don't we come up with a concept that could actually work? And so we came up with the idea of putting together the best stories of the past couple of months, and translate them into English, re-edit them, uh, put them together into sort of a magazine of its own. And um, last night, when I was here in London at my culture, um, talking about the international issue. Um, 
in the audience were quite a few people who actually knew the title and who were reading it. And so that's such a great feeling to come up with a crazy idea. I mean, who would have thought 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that a magazine from Germany uh, would be of any interest in, uh, in you know, countries like England or France or in the US. But, but then I, again, I think this is one of the characteristics of these independent magazines is that they're so international that, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at on, on the, the mainstream side, so you have Vogue Italia, British Vogue, Vogue US, and, you know, they're, they're, they're very clearly divided and people do want to see that across other countries. Whereas when you think about an independent magazine, you just expect that it's going to, you know, Drift magazine about mm -hmm. travel and coffee is made in Brooklyn, but it's going to be read by people who love travel and coffee everywhere. And I guess that, you know, this probably comes down to economics again, because Vogue's advertisers in those particular territories are paying to get their adverts in front of an audience in that territory. I get, is that part of the reason for the Zeit International Edition? So the, so your advertisers now can reach a, a, a wider audience? Yes, but we, you know, the, the, one of the funny experience that we've made and a surprising experience that we've made with the international issue it actually sells quite well in Germany. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> and when, when after the second issue had come out uh, and it had been in, you know, it's, it, uh, out there in the market for about two or three months, I asked the, the, the people from our distributing um, department, um, so, so do, you, do you have any clue where we actually sell the magazine? Because of, obviously it's, it's, you know, compared to the sort of 500,000 copies we sell every week with the site, it, it, it's, it's a small independent, so small independent magazine numbers. Um, so they said, well, it sells pretty well in New York. We sell surprisingly well in New York, um, surprisingly because the brand site doesn't exist in America. Um, and we obviously sell quite well in sort of the bigger European cities, Paris, Milan, also you know, Zurich, of course, and, and Vienna. Um, but then they said, well, you know, and, and do you know, and in Amsterdam, we're, we're pretty, pretty, uh, I think Amsterdam is sort of the biggest, mm. the biggest uh, market for the international issue within Europe. And then they said, well, you know, do you actually know where we sell the most copies? And then I have no clue. And they said, well, it's Berlin. What? And then we hadn't thought about that the fact ourselves that of course Berlin has become such an international place within the last 10 years with so many people from all over the world moving in not actually really speaking German so if you if you if you've just moved to Berlin and you're from from New Zealand or from uh, Spain or South America and you're interested in the culture of Berlin and Germany and you don't really speak German that well and German is a very difficult language um, yeah, of course, you might be interested in, in buying yeah. Zeit magazine. And you see the Zeit brand all around you, and so exactly. then it comes out. And it's, yeah. Okay, so having said that, makes no sense. That makes <laughs> perfect sense. I guess it's yeah. unexpected, but perfect sense. I, you know, and that's the great thing about putting, as you know, uh, uh, with as you've done with Stack, you know, putting something out there and seeing what happens and then reacting to it uh, is something that is vital to, to magazine, you know, editing a magazine. You know, that's why we actually introduced a special section about what's happening in Berlin, you know, the most exciting uh, venues and cafes and bars and restaurants in the international issue, because we realized, oh, 
in a way, it's a city magazine too. Mm. So it's it's for tourists to come to Berlin, but also for people who live in Berlin who've just moved to Berlin. They you know they're obviously interested in you know what's the you know nice new restaurant in Neukölln. So you actually have a Berlin city mag as well, but it just happens to be the international edition. Yeah, it's it, it's crazy, but it, in a way, it's true. So you and I first met under the auspices of. Agnes Kleiner. Uh, so from Benji Newman, we were in uh, Riga in Latvia. I guess it must have been a couple of years ago. Yeah, maybe three, four years. Yeah. Um, and you were doing a, a workshop, I think, there. So, so what, what were you talking about to the people in Latvia at, at that time? Um, they, I mean, Agnes, Agnes was interested in. Well, asked me to to talk about what we do, especially with the international issue, because. Um, obviously, the people in Riga are very interested uh, because of the German culture there uh, of what's happening in, in Germany. And there's a sort of a really tight cultural uh, relationship between the two countries. Um, so I think they're very, very keen and interested in, in what you know we're doing in Berlin. And to me, because I'd never been to Riga before, and to me, I was only there for three days. But to me, the biggest surprise was how close, closely we are connected. The two countries and cultures are connected, and I, I kept running into German, German roots and German history uh, there, good and bad. Um, but so that was that was a, a great thing, and I think that's also part of the independent magazine world that people are traveling to each other, doing conferences, whether they're in Hamburg or Riga or London. Um, and it's as you've said before it's such an international scene and it's, I think that's so inspiring mm. because usually you know uh, I, and I think that's true for every country so the the, the, the the magazine world of the journalist scene in every country is super small I mean it's only a few hundreds maybe thousand people uh, who actually you know are the editors and writers for newspapers the bigger newspapers and magazines uh, and it's usually a very national culture and we we report about the whole world, but in fact, we're you know the, the scenes are super small, mm. and they're very national minded. I think so. I think it's it's very inspirational and, and important to travel to other countries, meet other people who pr- basically do the same thing. Right, exactly. And so when when you go and meet those people, and you 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 know you're obviously a magazine enthusiast as well as a, a magazine maker. When you're looking for inspiration or you're looking for stories, you have this cornucopia of magazines, all these different magazines you can slot things into. What's the thing that you're looking for? What's the thing across all of your stories where you think that that's worth reporting, that's worth telling people? Well, I'm always waiting for the surprise. And, uh, you know, when I got my first copy of, of um, the wonderful uh, Dutch design magazine, um, that we just, um, you know, phrased to be the, the best magazine at your awards. Exactly. I was taken by surprise that, you know, because design magazines had been reinvented in the last 10 or 15 years, a couple of times. I mean, you know, Appartimento, who I think is now 10 years old, sort of changed the whole idea of um, design magazines. And then MacGuffin comes up and redefines it again. And comes up with a totally new idea and sort of uh, the idea of focusing on one small item of uh, that's part of a, a, a house or an apartment and you know dedicating 
a whole issue to it. And it's such a great way of design and photography and, and storytelling. And I would have never expected that. I, I, you know, I, I could have never told you before, oh, oh, I'm looking for the next great design magazine. No, of course I wasn't. So it's always about opening your eyes and being interested in thinking like, oh, I don't know this. What is it about? I think that's, I think you, you have to go around being open to things. I think being actively open to things is so important because that's the way that you discover these new things. So now when you're doing this, so you're, you're like editor-in-chief across all of these titles, if someone said to you, so you can be the writer or you can be the editor and that's your lot for the rest of your days, which way would you go? I, you know, I have the great pleasure of doing both, which is, <laughs> which is, no, which is such, a, such a privilege. And, I, you know, and I'm very, very aware of that privilege because obviously I became a journalist because I wanted to write stories and that's how you became, become a journalist usually, right? Uh, so you know, meeting people, going out in the world, trying to understand how the world ticks and just then trying to write it down. Um, actually, my very first article that I actually ever wrote was uh, here in England. I went to school in Plymouth in 1990. And, um, you know, at the time, Germany was about to be reunified and there was a whole big political debate, especially in the UK. You know, will there be a Fourth Reich? Uh, and Margaret Thatcher was very skeptical about, you know, the the future of Germany. And um, I don't know if you remember this, but um, there weren't enough te teachers in many British schools at the time. So they, they had brought back some retired teachers, uh, at least to Plymouth High School for Boys, where I went to. <laughs> so I, I think it was in the second or third week in, in, in that school, and the, the sort of my first history uh, lesson, and the, the history teacher came in. I mean, he was one of those retired teachers. And, and I was sitting there in class, and then he he, he he said, "Oh, someone told me there's a young German student here in class. Um, would you please stand up as, and tell us why we shouldn't be afraid of a reunified Germany?" Wow! Exactly. So I, I blushed. <laughs> I, I I got up and then stuttering and trying to make up my mind because I'd never thought about the idea of someone being afraid of you know my country or people around me and myself. So I tried to you know, explain that to him and to the class. And then at the end of the, the after class, uh, uh, another student asked me to actually write about the, the, that, what I was just talking about. So that was my very first article. And, and uh, I really, by doing some research, which I didn't know what, what I was doing at the time, sort of reading books and trying to you know, get into the history, um, I really found pleasure in, in writing. So, so that's, you know, I probably became a journalist. Um, but today, um, you know, being the editor and being in charge of so many projects and, and, and writers and the whole team, um, I'm still able to actually uh, write and to do profiles and interviews. Uh, and that's, and that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's, it's also a very healthy balance. Um, especially in, 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 in my job because you know as an editor stories come to you usually as problems you know you, you, you sign a writer you know sign a story and you, you ask the writer to, to come back with the story and, and in, in a few very few cases the actually written piece is pitch perfect um, at the very beginning mine are not so you know most, uh, most aren't 
And so usually, you know, the, the pieces come to you at a certain stage in the editing process as not perfect or they have to be, you know, worked on again and again and again. So um, you might get the idea that, you, you know, all these things are always about problems, all these stories. So it's a very healthy experience to do it yourself again and again and to, you know, be sitting in front of your um, laptop and trying to write the first sentence. Yeah, that blank screen. Absolutely. And it's very healthy to be back in the seat and trying to figure out how am I going to start the story. Excellent. Well, Christoph, thank you again for making the time. I could talk to you all day, but um, we, we need to get off and do some other things. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Steve. Okay, that's all for this week. I loved hearing Christoph talking about his approach to editing and especially that idea of stories presenting themselves as a series of problems that need to be fixed. I don't think I need to say that he is, of course, a very busy man, so I'd just like to say thanks again to him for being so generous with his time. I'd also like to say thanks very much to you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear more conversations with magazine makers, search for Stack Magazines on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, if you follow us while you're there, we'll be able to deliver next week's episode as soon as it's ready. And finally, we're releasing this episode on Friday the 1st of December, which means it is high time we were talking about Christmas. We've got a lovely offer this year, which means you can buy somebody's stack for Christmas and we'll send you a free magazine plus a sheet of wrapping paper and a welcome card all to arrive in time for Christmas. And then their subscription will actually begin in January. Prices start from just £20 or €40 Euros or $40. So go to stackmagazines.com forward slash Christmas for all you need to give a brilliant magazine subscription this year. Oh, and we made it snow on our Christmas page too. And I find myself going there sometimes literally just to watch magazines getting snowed on. So go over there, watch some snow, listen to some podcasts, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank <laughs> you.